What a wonderful truth to be reminded that Christ is with us uh, to the very end. I uh, perhaps can sympathize with some of us in our congregation this morning who are coming uh, at the end of important milestones. Students, you are coming to the end of your semester. Some of you are already done. Uh, and some of you are getting ready to say, I'm so glad this is over. I'm so glad this semester is over. Hopefully the next semester will be a little different. Um, the end of a semester is always a uh, bittersweet experience. Now, some of you students may say, where's the bitter part? I only see the sweet part of that. Uh, well, if you're not done with your exams, it's still a little bitter. There's still a little bit of anxiety in how you are thinking about the end of the semester. Uh, this morning, I'm looking around in our audience, and I see a number uh, of visitors uh, who are coming to visit members of our congregation. We welcome you. We're glad you're here. Can you think uh, in your life of a time when something you were excited about came to an end? Now, I'm not talking about what students you're thinking about, something that you've dreaded this semester is coming to an end, and you're just super excited to be done and looking forward to the summer. I am not talking about that kind of milestone. I'm talking about something that you are excited about. You hope it would never end. You hope it just keeps going and going, and it does come to an end. Plans that were unfolding well, all of a sudden experience a, an abrupt shift and come to an end. Hopes that you had that did not come to fruition all of a sudden, those hopes are coming to an end. People who have such experiences uh, often refer to them as the door closed. Have you heard people say that? Oh, that door closed. Perhaps it was a job application. Or perhaps it was an internship that you hoped to get. Perhaps it was a relationship that you hoped it would start, and perhaps even started. But then something happened, and it came to an end. Or perhaps it was a, a job that you were engaged in, or a business opportunity or venture that you took, and then it just fumbled, and it closed. Take a moment to reflect in your mind. Can you think of closed doors that you've encountered? Can you think of one right now? Perhaps you are in one of those experiences as we speak. To experience closed doors is a very common reality for all of us. No matter what stage of life we experience that in, there's going to be different shapes and forms that we experience such closed doors. This is the kind of feel we get from the chapter we are about to read with David. We usually don't like when doors are being closed on us. We usually take those as, as negative experiences. And yet we'll see in the message today that even though and even through closed doors, God is still working and accomplishing his purposes. So the message this morning is when doors are closed. Would you open God's word to 1 Samuel chapter 29? We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 11, by far the shortest chapter that we have been through in this series of messages on the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 29, verses 1 through 11. I encourage you to open God's word and listen along 
uh, as we unpack the truth that God has revealed to us uh, in his word. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Samuel chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphak, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now. And go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you... Join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed to us the entirety of your word. And even chapters like this that seem interesting to us, we may wonder, what is it that we should take from it? Father, we know that you have inspired this word to be part of your revelation to us. So we pray that you would open our minds Enable me to preach your word with clarity. We pray that you'd also open our hearts, that we would be ready to listen and hear and obey your word through the transforming power of the gospel. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. This chapter feels like a jigsaw puzzle piece. When you look at a, a puzzle and you try to make it, I don't know if you enjoy doing that. I do, especially on vacation. 
Um, when, when you look at a, a jigsaw puzzle piece, you look at it, you look at its shape, you look at its colors. It might have different colors, some lines in it. You just look at it and you're like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this piece. I'm not sure what this piece is supposed to actually portray. Because by itself, the colors and the line and the pattern in that one piece just do not portray a complete picture. And that is the feel this chapter has for this book. It just doesn't seem to make sense by itself. It feels incomplete. And in this case, that feeling is so right and it's so intentional because the narrator of the book has divided this, this story of David and Achish in two parts. If you've been with us two weeks ago, you remember that the story of David and Achish really started in chapter 27. When David defected from Israel because Saul's relentless pursuit of him, David sought safety with the Philistines at Gath with King Achish. And chapter 27 revealed to us that David tricked Achish, leading him to think that he was making all these raids to plunder the people of Judah when in reality David was attacking the other nations. And because David covered all his tracks, Achish began trusting David. So much so that Achish asked David to be his bodyguard and to join him in the big battle that the kings of the Philistines planned to have against Israel. And David, at the end of chapter 27, David was excited to be in the battle. That's how chapter 27 ended. With David being recruited by King Achish, one of the five kings of the Philistines, to enter the battlefield with the Philistine kings against Israel. And now chapter 29 picks up where chapter 27 ended. And chapter 29 starts with a scene of David marching out in the roll call of the Philistine army and being flagged by the Philistine commanders. The chapter closes with David being asked and ordered to leave the battlefield before the battle even begins and to return home back to Ziklag. In between the beginning and the end of, of this chapter, we have two dialogues. The first dialogue is between Achish and the Philistine kings. And the second dialogue is between Achish and David. When David finds out, finds out that he cannot be on this battlefield and must return home. From David's perspective, chapter 29 feels like a door slammed in his face and closed. And he doesn't understand why. So the title this morning is, When Doors Are Closed. And the message of this chapter, the message of this chapter could be the answer when doors are closed, God is still working. When doors are closed, God is still working, even if you don't see him. This chapter, there is no reference to God in this, book, in this chapter. Actually, we can say even more than that, that God is working through closed doors 
just as much as he's working through open doors. When the doors are opening for us, it's very easy for us to see the, the fingerprints of God just working all throughout the details. The doors just begin opening. And it's so easy for us, for our hearts to, to, to exclaim in praise and thank God for opening doors. We see his presence when the doors are opening for us. But do we see his presence? Do we see his fingerprints when the doors are closed? And I hope that from this passage, we get to see the fingerprints of God, even though he's not referenced. We hope that we see the fingerprints of God working through closed doors in this text. Two, the two dialogues that are, are in this passage are going to provide the two points for the message. David's potential plans are exposed. That's the first point. David's potential plans are exposed. Second, David's hoped-for plans are stopped. David's hoped-for plans are stopped. Let's look at the first half of this a message. The first point, David's potential plans are exposed. We see this in verses 1 through 5. On the day before the battle, all the Philistine kings brought their soldiers and verified who were on their roll call uh, to be on this battlefield. And just as the end of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28 told us, Achish, when he came with his part of the army, who was, who was at the end? Coming behind Achish's army, David and all his men. And the commanders of the Philistines discovered David and his men trailing at the end of Achish's regiment of soldiers. And they ask in verse 3, what are these Hebrews doing here? What a good question. To anyone with a decent degree of common sense, it is not hard to figure out what is wrong with this picture. The Philistines are planning a big battle. They're gathering at Aphek. By the way, if you've been in this book, Aphek should ring a bell. There had been another battle between the Philistines and the Israelites at a and, and the Philistines gathered at Aphek. It was in chapter 4. All the way in chapter 4, when the Israelites wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant on the battlefield because they thought that surely will win them the victory against the Philistines. And on the battlefield at Aphek, God had given the Israelite army into the hands of the Philistines even though the Ark of the Covenant was among them. Now, at the end of the book, the Philistines are gathering again for battle at Aphek. So, the Philistines are doing their roll call. And who is among them? Not the Ark of the Covenant. David. And he's dressed like one of them. And he's not alone. He's got his entire army, 600 men, violent men. And the Philistines realize, wait, what are we doing here? What are these Hebrews doing here? Now imagine, let me, let me bring this down to our Austin climate. Imagine 
the big football game between the Texas Longhorns and Oklahoma. The famous Oklahoma-Texas football rivalry game that happens every year, not in Austin, not in Oklahoma, it happens in Dallas every year. What would happen if before the players walk out on the field, one of the Texas players decided to change his jersey and swap it with the Oklahoma jersey and would roll out on the field with the Oklahoma team? How confusing would that be? And even if the, the captain of the team on the Oklahoma side would vouch for the defected Texas player and say, oh, I know this guy. He's, he's my friend. He's my loyal friend. He's been with me all this time. I think he'll be with us. He's safe. Would the coach of the Oklahoma team let the guy roll out like that? That would be foolish. Well, this is the kind of stuff that David is trying to do here. David thinks he can go by, get by and go on fighting with the enemy team, pretending to be loyal and eager to fight for Israel, against Israel's army with the Philistines. Now, throughout this book, Achish has been presented as the gullible king whom David has been able to trick. But now these Philistine commanders have a better sense of judgment and flag the inconsistency and the danger to have such Hebrews fighting in this big battle at Aphak. Achish brings his reasons for David and having him in the army. He says in verse 3, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Now the description Achish gives about David in this chapter are the words of, of one who has been deceived and really naive. If you remember chapter 27, the only reason Achish did not find fault in David is because David covered all his tracks. And he managed to deceive Achish in all his raids. David had not been fighting against the people of Israel in his previous raids. He has been fighting against the enemies of God's people. But Achish falls for David's trap and assures the Philistine kings that David's loyalty is to the Philistine king. And when the commanders hear Achish's reasoning, they are angry. Actually, other translations say they, are, they were enraged. There's, there's no sense, there's no room for, they, for them to, to allow for this nonsense logic on Achish's side. The Philistine kings not only don't buy his explanation, but they also expose David's potential plans. They perceive that one way for David's uh, strategy to reconcile with, with Saul would be for David to actually switch gears in the middle of the battle and, and turn against the Philistines and side with the Israelites and help the Israelites win against this seemingly invincible war. The, the Philistine commanders also remind Achish about the music, about the music that was being sung uh, in those lands, among the Jews and even among the Philistines. The song, look at verse 5. Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. The Philistine kings are aware. Remember who David truly is, what he has been doing throughout this book. 
who his identity is. So they decide David must be removed from the battlefield. Now, friends, pause here for a moment and consider how amazing it is that even the Philistines could figure out the bad logic of this one king, to, of David fighting with the Philistines against the Israelites. The Philistines get the inconsistency of that. And they say, we cannot move forward. We cannot allow this to happen. And I think this brings up two applications for us. For one, God, in this case, used the wisdom of Philistine commanders to point out serious inconsistencies. God can use pagans and their logic to point out inconsistencies in how God's people live. How amazing that these kings knew it was not appropriate for David to try to pretend to fight with the Philistines. That was not appropriate. There's no, there's no room for, for playing the, the double card here. How amazing that the world is able to spot our inconsistencies, sometimes better than we spot them ourselves. And they also know how to exploit those. God can use unregenerate minds to point out truths in the created world. There is a common grace that God has given to all people, and we want to consider and be open to how God can use even pagan rulers, as he does in this case, to point out inconsistencies and blind spots that we have. Don't be closed to hearing that. Don't be closed to consider how God could be using the world out there to point out things that we may be blind spotted to. A second application, have you ever considered that when a person repents of their sins and trusts in Christ and makes a public declaration of their faith in Jesus through baptism and joining a church, by the way, which hopefully we'll do, I look forward to, to, to seeing that expressed by Reina in a few weeks, actually next week in baptism, Praise God, we look forward to that experience. But have you considered that when somebody does that, when somebody gets baptized, publicly declaring to the world that now they are followers of Christ, it is as if they're putting on the jersey of Jesus, declaring to the world they belong to Christ and they're playing on his team. That happens when people get baptized and join the church. But have you also considered that when we choose to live more like the world than the way Christ calls us to live, when we choose to, to, to do our own thing or, or take the values of the culture around us instead of doing what the Lord calls us to live, it's as if we say in those moments, in those experiences, let me put on the Oklahoma jersey on. Let me put on the, the team of the opposite side. The, the jersey of, of the opposite team and pretend like I'm on their side. And you know, I actually think I can get some advances for the kingdom of God if I can just play more like them a little bit and then, you know, do a bait and switch on them in the middle of the game. It's like the foolishness of thinking that we can actually live our lives pretending to be more like the world in order to have more impact in the world. Friends, how foolish, how foolish that is. David is trying to, to do some of that here. 
That's why part of us thinking through even the, the, the meaning of membership is to remind each other that we're playing for the team of Jesus. And there's no wisdom at all. And there's no room for us to try to play the foolish game of putting a different jersey on during the week. That's what baptism means. That's what membership means. To encourage one another, to stir up one another, to love and good works so that we may consistently play for the team of Christ. But all of this is very different than what David is trying to do uh, here in this moment in the book. What are these Hebrews doing here? May I say, if I can use this language and apply it to us, what are these Christians doing living like the world? Pretending like they are advancing the, the values of, of the world when in, in reality we should be advancing the values of the kingdom. What are these Hebrews doing here? God uses Philistine kings to expose David's potential plans, to remind us David's victories for God's people in the past and show how inconsistent the past has been with what David is now pretending to be in the moment. How foolish. Is it possible that their fears exposed what actually David was planning to do? Is it possible that what they are afraid of was actually exposing what David was actually planning to do? It's hard to tell. The text is not clear. I personally, from context, I'm inclined to believe that's the case. But I hold that with a very light hand. I simply present it as a possibility. And we see that from what happens in the second part of the chapter. David's hoped-for plans are stopped. David's hoped-for plans are stopped. We see this in verses 6 through 11. From the second dialogue in this chapter, it's I think it's very clear that David was eager to fight enrolled in the Philistine army. And Achish has to break the news to him that this plan cannot happen. The dialogue between Achish and David is like a sandwich in which Achish speaks so highly of David, both at the beginning and at the end. And in between, we see David's words that push back and does not want to accept the verdict that he should be uh, away from the battle, that he should be leaving the battlefield. Notice the characteristics that Achish makes of David. In verse 6, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Let me pause here for a moment and show you why it's so critical and this example is an amazing example for us never to read a passage of Scripture without understanding the context. If this is all you read, if you memorize this verse and you forgot what was going on before and after this book, this chapter, you would actually walk away with the very opposite conclusion of what the surrounding chapters are presenting about David. This is an example, you would walk away thinking like David is the most honest man that ever walked on the face of the earth in front of this king Achish. There's not enough superlative adjectives that Achish can give to David. And the very fact that the first ad adjective is you've been honest. And if you've read chapter 27, you know 
that the narrator is now playing an irony with us here. Because in chapter 27, the narrator has told us how smart and deceptive David has been with Achish. So here's an example. Never read a verse on its own without understanding the context. Context is so crucial in understanding the meaning of a particular verse or sentence. The narrator has told us that David has been tricking Achish. In any narrative, here's another point about understanding narratives. In any narrative, the characters in the story have a limited perspective. They don't always speak with a full picture. But the narrator always does. The narrator is the inspired one in the story. He has often the mind of God. And the way he actually orchestrates and, and organizes the details of the story, the unfolding of the story, is, is fully inspired by God to communicate the point. So we can trust the narrator, but just be aware that sometimes the characters have a limited perspective. And that's achish for us here Achish has a limited perspective. The narrator has told us that in chapter 27, David's policy has been consistent to cover his tracks by killing everybody. Killing everybody so no one could escape to tell Achish what David was truly doing. We must keep that information in mind as we approach this passage. The admiration that Achish had of David was extremely generous. But sadly, it was also extremely misguided. It is super positive only because that is the facade David was able to create in front of this Philistine king, Achish. And when David hears the news that he cannot go in the battlefield enrolled with a Philistine army, he pushes back. He wants to be on the battlefield. Now, if David wanted to get out, if he realized, oops, I'm in a tough spot here. So far, I, I thought I could pretend being, like, being for the Philistines and, uh, and, and serving them. But now, how can, I, how can I keep both faces? How can I keep pretending like I'm going to be with the Philistines? And yet, my fellow soldiers, Israelites, people of Judah will see me fighting, keeping the jersey of the Philistines in battle against my fellow people. Can I, can I keep two faces? This would be a great opportunity for David to say, ooh, let me get out of this one. I don't need to push back on this. Like the Lord is just providing a great opportunity for me to finally come out clean. But no, David pushes. And I think David pushes, and this is why I'm inclined to believe, because he, his plan was perhaps to do a bait and switch. To, to turn against the Philistines in the middle of the battle. Now, if I'm wrong in that interpretation, it may be. I just present it as a possibility. David is pushing back. And the way he's pushing back, the way he's pushing back, again, is very witty. He's using language with double meaning. Look at verse 8. David said to Achish, well, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? David is so confident in how he covered his tracks that he even pleads for evidence. Do you have evidence to, to distrust me? David's language, then he goes on to say, to fight against the enemies of my lord, the king. 
Now, when Achish heard those words, what he was thinking, I am your Lord. He already gave him the job of being his bodyguard. He thought David is talking about King, the Lord, King Achish. It's possible, though, that David used these words, that he wants to fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King, either referring to his Lord, Saul, King Saul, or even better, his Lord, the King of the universe. The words of David could be interpreted either way. And, they, and Achish is so gullible, he has no idea. In this chapter, I think David is using ambiguous language to pretend that he's for the Philistines when the context tells us that David's heart continued to be for the Israelites. There's something in chapter 30 from the context that tells us that David's heart was still with the Israelites. At the end of chapter 30, David sends gifts to the people of Judah. Why would he send gifts to the people of Judah if his heart was now resentful against them? If he truly wanted to fight with the Philistines against them? I think all this is David pretending, wanting to pretend he's going to fight for the Philistines and in the middle of the battle, try to switch against them. But friends, Achish continues to be the gullible king who continues to lavish on David incredible admirations. In verse 9, he says, You are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Oh, my goodness, Achish. If he just had a little sense of what is truly going on. But he doesn't get it. Nevertheless, the decision of the Philistine kings prevail. David must not be allowed in his battle. No matter how, how smart David was, to, to develop this strategy of fighting the Philistines by pretending to play with them for the first part of the game, no matter how smart that strategy was, David will not be allowed to execute. A door is closed for David. Now, if it is true that David's plan was to turn against the Philistines in the battle and help Israel win, if that's indeed the case... David does not know what the narrator has told us in chapter 28. Remember in chapter 28, the narrator made an abrupt change and told us about Saul and his visit to the medium at Endor. And the point of that chapter was to tell Saul and to tell us as, as readers, God had a different plan for Israel the next day. David's plan, perhaps, was to pretend to play with the Philistines and switch on them to try to win the battle in favor of the Israelites. David does not yet know the mind of God that has been revealed to us in the previous chapter that God was planning to give the Israelites into the hands of the Philistines. So the Lord used the decision of the Philistine kings to close the door for David to be on the battlefield with the Philistines because God was planning to give the Israelites the next day into the hands of the Philistines. On the other side, if you're not convinced, or if, if it's not true that David was truly planning to fight with the Philistines against Israel, and that that David somehow was truly planning to just be consistently fighting with the Philistines against the Israelites, the bringing of the folk music lyrics takes us all the way back to the beginning of David's appearance in this book. 
it reminds us, that song reminds us of what David's destiny really was. His destiny was to fight for God's people, not against them. So if David's heart is still truly clutched in to side with the Philistines against the Israelites, then the reader is reminded, David, what are you doing? You are fighting for the wrong direction. And the Lord intervened through the Philistines to keep David away from doing the very opposite that God had called him to do. In either case, whichever explanation really was the situation, the Lord used the Philistine kings to change the course of action that Achish and David devised at first that seemed so good in both of their eyes. The Lord is a God who is able to use even pagan kings to shut doors which fulfill God's plans and intent with us. Trust that. So Achish gives the following instruction to David, verse 10. Then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. Now there's a contrast here. Remember, the, the narrator has been inspired by God in how to tell the story. There's a contrast in how chapter 28 ended. In chapter 28, and by the way, there's a contrast here between David and Saul all throughout this book. Chapter 28 closed with the image that Saul had left the scene in the middle of the night. He was heading to the battlefield knowing the will of the Lord, knowing that he will die the next day. David is commanded here by the Philistines to leave from the battlefield. He has no idea yet what the will of the Lord is. He just gets this slam in your face, uh, door, closed door. But David leaves not in the middle of the night. He's commanded to leave in the morning. Just a contrast between one king who ends up leaving in the middle of the night, going to his death, and another king commanded to leave in the middle of the, of the bright day, of the new day. What a contrast. In chapter 28, we were told that God will use the Philistines to accomplish his plans with Saul and the Philistine and the Israelite army. God was going to use the, the, the Philistines to accomplish his plans with Saul and the Israelite army. And in chapter 29, God uses the Philistines to accomplish his plans with David. In chapter 28, we were told that God will use the Philistines to kill Saul. In chapter 29, God uses the Philistines to keep David out of this battle, even though he wanted to be in it. And here's the point. Even if David had taken a wrong turn, in going to the Philistines and finding safety with them. And even if David had planned to fight with the Philistines against Israel, whatever his motives had been, the Lord is working in his mysterious ways, using Philistines, even the enemies of the people of God, to accomplish his plans with the people of God. David's potential plans are both exposed and stopped by his enemies. And this turned out to be a good thing. You might wonder, well, how do I know it's a good thing? Remember, this chapter is like that solo piece of a jigsaw puzzle. The good thing becomes clear when we peek ahead at the next piece that comes in chapter 30. In chapter 30, we find out that David 
when he gets back to Ziklag, he realizes that the Amalekites have attacked the city, burnt it down, and have taken all their wives and kids captive. If David remained on the battlefield against Israel with the Philistines that day, he would have not been able to come to the aid of his family in chapter 30. God used the Philistines to close one door for David in order to prepare him for another door, for another battle, for another door to walk through. And there's some application points for us here. Not every battle is ours to fight. Not every battle is ours to fight. Not every door is ours to walk through. Not every door is ours to walk through. Trust that if God is closing one door, he has other doors for us to walk through. And this is, this is a picture of God's magnificent providence that he can work sovereignly even through our enemies, even through what looks like defeat for us in order to accomplish his plans with us. Friends, consider that this is supremely shown and displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. We sang earlier in our service, when I survey the wondrous cross. To any onlooker, the cross is a sign of a cruel punishment, of injustice. The, the words of the song, when I survey the wondrous cross on which a prince of glory died, how can that be possible, the prince of glory, to be brought to the lowest experience of humanity to be killed unjustly and crucified. The cross seemed to be the ultimate manifestation of defeat. The cross seemed to be the ultimate manifestation of a closed door that all that Jesus had done on earth was not now over. It seemed that the enemies of God were in control. The Jewish leaders who had tried to kill Jesus from the beginning of the gospel it seemed that they had their way by trying to speak lies to the Roman governor and, and try to accuse Jesus unjustly. It seemed like their way prevailed. And the Roman soldiers and their brutality and oppression through crucifixion, yes, their plans also prevailed. And yet, it's through the defeat and the closed door of a cross that God was actually working through the death of Jesus. Friends, we worship a God who works wonders, both in opening doors, but also in closing doors. He works wonders when, when, when we mess up our plans. He works wonders when he gets in the middle of our messes, in the middle of our rebellion, and he lets our rebellion come to utter defeat, to bring our idols down, the power of God working through weakness is so much more powerful than all our human strength. That's why the gospel is such a good news. It is a God who works so powerfully through the picture and the reality of the uttermost defeat and weakness. The gospel calls those who have prided themselves in their boasting, in their planning, in their self-made strategies. It calls us to a place of defeat, to a place of considering the cross of Christ 
The cross calls us to tune out all our plans that we have made for ourselves and surrender them to God, who works through defeat, through works through weakness, who works through Christ alone to rescue sinners from our foolish plans and our foolish rebellion, from our foolish hopes, and gives us instead a better hope. Friends, do you believe that God is able to accomplish his purposes through defeat? It is part of the heart of the gospel. So if we are people who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must embrace the reality. God works sovereignly to accomplish his plans through defeat. And when we understand that, it may be easier for us to understand that the call to repentance is a call to actually surrender ourselves to the defeat, to our own defeat, knowing that God actually works with that to bring about something glorious. Friends, the cross of Jesus was the greatest defeat to every onlooker, to every Jew, to every disciple. And when the rock was set in place on the tomb of Jesus, with Jesus inside, it seemed over. There was no explanation for this defeat. And yet, the Lord works through closed doors. If you're not a Christian, consider turning to the God who's able to work through defeat and closed doors. Listen to the words of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts, says the Lord, are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, friends, turn to the God who works through closed doors. If you are a Christ follower, be encouraged and reminded that even when our doors are closed, God is still mysteriously working in our lives to accomplish his purposes. Trying to bring about God's plans in our lives through our strategic plans to advance the kingdom, to advance our agenda, may, may not work the way we intended to work. But friends, trust assured of this, that God works through defeat and closed doors. So let me ask you, when doors close, what do you do? Can you embrace the truth that God works through such experiences? That God works powerfully? That he works to his glory and ultimately to our good as well, even if we don't see it in the moment? Can you find comfort and can you worship God who is powerful to work in mysterious ways? even in ways that we may not understand in the moment. There's some music that we sing. And the lyrics of it in one of the stanzas says the following, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. When doors are closed, what will you do? Let's pray.